It's that time of the year again. The weather's getting chilly and the smell of competition's in the air. It's time to adorn yourself in your favorite team's colors and let the neighbors know who you support. And I'm not talking about football. That's right. Premiering today for the audience of Against the Mob podcast, we have a special offer on an exciting new product. Introducing to the American consumer, political-themed sports jerseys. Look, we both know you haven't been doing the necessary research to keep up with your obligatory social media persona. Heck, in an ideal world, we wouldn't have to post about politics at all. But the pressures presented to us by our social media overwatchers mandates a strong political opinion these days. That's why we're filling the niche in this market with an opportunity to blindly support the politicians you love regardless of their policies. Stop studying day-to-day to have an informed political opinion. Simplify your day with a jersey from AmericanSheep.com, promo code not a real ad. That's AmericanSheep.com, promo code not a real ad. Color Rush jerseys are available for a limited time. Color Rush jerseys include Build That Wall Crimson and Blue No Matter Who Sapphire. gentlemen welcome back to episode four of against the mob of course you got myself logan carpenter and matthew billingsley here and today we're joined by a special guest uh, we have matthew mitchell he is a senior research fellow and director of the equal liberty uh, initiative at the mercatus center in george mason and we're excited about this because i think matthew and i are really focused on the totalitarian idea of the state how the state can infringe on your rights uh, become a state of oppression and how it leads to some of the worst atrocities in human history, be it uh, genocides, uh, total war, that sort of thing. So today what we're going to do is take a little bit of a step back and look at why libertarianism not only is what we would consider the most moral way for us to organize a society and keep an eye on the state, but also has uh, a very positive correlation to economics and how we think it's probably the best way simply to organize society in a successful way uh, in general. Matt, thank you very much for joining us. Um, I've known uh, Mr. Mitchell for a second now, and I'm very honored, and we are humbled to have you on. So uh, would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, Thanks so much for having me, guys. Uh, Yeah, uh, Matt and I are fortunate enough to live in the same small community nestled in the mountains of uh, northern New Mexico. Uh, I've lived here for a few years, but I work at George Mason University out on the East Coast. Uh, Well before everybody else was uh, working from home, I I was working from home uh, in my PJs. So I'm glad to join you guys today. That's awesome. (laughs) We're all looking pretty comfy this morning. I like it. (laughs) So something that we wanted to um, reframe after after our first meeting with with Mr. Mitchell, um, he showed us that um, our framing of episode two, though not necessarily wrong, is not also not um, necessarily correct as well. And so we framed episode two as the idea of freedom versus order. And Logan and I even had a conversation where maybe it should be freedom versus safety, but we ended up going with freedom versus order. However, um, Matt was kind enough to show us that um, 
you don't need a state to create the organizations for the market to succeed. And then you can just translate that out um, to a political spectrum that you don't need the state for a community um, organization to succeed. And so he pointed us in the right direction of uh, spontaneous order, which is order that just emerges in a free and open society. And one of the examples he gave us is the rules of language, right? There's no czar of English. There's no minister of speech, at least not yet. We'll see how the next four years might go. Um, and then we might run into something uh, where, where we do have that. But for right now, English just follows these rules that, um, that we the, we the engagers actually create. And he also said that uh, markets have similar characteristics. So Matt, would you like to kind of expand on that for us? Yeah, so this idea came out of uh, what's known as the Scottish Enlightenment. Um, and the, this for, you know, taxing your memories back to, uh, you know, seventh grade, this is Adam Smith, um, Adam Ferguson, uh, David Hume, these philosophers that were very active in the um, 18th century um, and 19th century. And one of their insights, in some ways it actually preceded um, Darwin, is that sometimes you can see order emerge out of, as Adam Ferguson put it, human action, but not human design. And the point here is that when we humans interact with one another, sometimes orders emerge that we don't even necessarily intend. And sometimes these orders can be really good. So, um, you know, you mentioned the idea of language and I think that's a perfect one. There is no czar of the English language. Um, there's no minister of the English language. And yet we have these conventions um, that have developed over time simply because they work. And it's a constantly evolving and changing order. And the market too has this characteristic of an emergent order. It is the outcome of human action, but not necessarily human design. And it's actually, it's such a, a, an amazing um, outcome, you know, produces these amazing outcomes that we sort of take it for granted. But, you know, consider the fact, think about how many armies have starved on the battlefield because the minister of supplies screwed up. Right. Right. Yet in a market economy, there is precisely zero examples of famines occurring in a market economy. We wake up, you see people, you know, in, in huge populations, New York, wake up every morning and expect that there will be breakfast for them. Right. And yet virtually none of those people actually know how to, you know, milk a cow uh, get the eggs, get the, grow the, grow, um, you know, the grains and the wheat that goes in the cereal. They, they're, they're dependent on millions of other strangers. And yet, you know, thousands of miles away, farmers in the Midwest wake up and produce breakfast for people in New York. Uh, and they do this because of the market, because of the, sig the signals of prices, profit, and loss. And those signals encourage all of us to constantly work for one another and do so in a way that we can fit our plans together. And it's really, a, it's a remarkable process. Um, and one, one way to, I think, to illustrate it is to think through and examine what happens when things change. So a few years ago, you guys may remember, there was this pretty awesome dash cam footage of a um, asteroid uh, a, uh, 
coming and hitting a um, coming into Russia. And yeah, that's it, right. as it as it turns out, it hits a zinc factory. Well, what does that do? Uh, the zinc factory, it turns out, was actually made a sizable portion of the Earth's uh, zinc, something like 22%. So, okay, you take out a zinc factory for a couple of months, the price of zinc goes up, right? Because right. supply is limited. Well, this sends two really important signals. Uh, as price goes up, it tells consumers of zinc, it's like a big stop sign. Don't, don't consume as much zinc. Think of substitutes that you can in your manufacturing. So people, so manufacturers substituted for aluminum and other types of metals that can do the same job as zinc. Um, and at the same time that it has a big stop sign to consumers of zinc, it sends a big go sign to producers. Hey, if you can figure out a way to either find find more zinc, make more zinc, or find zinc substitutes, that's that's a nice profit opportunity. And that is exactly what, if there were a czar of zinc, there isn't, if there were, that's exactly what they would want, right? They would want to send signals to consumers that say, hey, economize on this. At the same time that they would want to send signals to producers, hey, ramp up on this. And those kinds of changes happen constantly, all the time, without us even being aware of it. Mm -hmm. um, so you can think through the consequences, you know, what happens in a natural disaster when, um, when, you know, in the run-up to a natural disaster, it's very common for lumber to get more expensive. And, you, you know, you and I, uh, Matt, we live in a place that's not prone for uh, hurricanes. But, uh, you know, if a hurricane is going to hit the Gulf Coast, it's still going to make lumber more expensive for us, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a good thing because that that helps us. It tells us, hey, don't consume lumber. It's needed somewhere else. And it helps producers think through, oh, if I buy lumber, you know, in, in a, um, if, I, if I buy where it's cheap and sell where it's expensive, I can make a profit and I'll end up serving other people. So essentially the idea of spontaneous order or some people call it emergent order is that through uh, all sorts of processes, we can in pursuing our own interest end up serving the interests of others. And probably one of the most famous of these is the price, the, the price signals, because prices in a, in a market economy um, help people work together as if they were one vast army being led by somebody. But the nice thing is they aren't led. They're led by their own conscience and their own desires. And so they're serving their own interests at the same time that they're fitting their plans in with those of others. Right. And this kind of goes into the, which all of us have heard the, the analogy of the invisible hand of the market. And how it's going to guide you in these areas, like you're saying, where there are these these right. opportunities within the market, um, they're going to get filled with niches. Um, a great example of this is the a video that Mr. Mitchell referred to us, uh, and we're going to include the link, of course, in our our uh, uh, description of the video here. Uh, but it just goes into breaking down the pencil and the the complexity of that. Um, how you have all these small things where no one person really has the specialization to create a pencil, but when you bring together all these different marketplace areas. There's somebody that can produce the wood, the composite to put together for the shell of it, uh, the graphite for the center. Uh, you even have to have some zinc and some rubber and really interesting just to see, and it, it expounds out. And I would encourage everybody who's listening to this to take six minutes out of your day and watch that video. It really, uh, really makes a succinct point in exactly what you're talking about there. Um, I thought it was especially poignant too. When you... also... Go ahead. Sorry. 
I was just going to say real quick, it, it also kind of ties into one of Adam Smith's insights, which is that we get more productive, the more specialized we are. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it, it, probably the best way to see this is if you look at some of those YouTube videos, uh, humans are awesome. And you see people do things, you know, whether they're craftsmen or they're, uh, you know, even people that are they make food or, or, or stirring cocktails, you know, you do something over and over again, and you can be extraordinarily competent at it. And so, you know, Adam Smith's insight was that one of the reasons why uh, modern societies, he was running in the banner years for freedom, 1776, um, you know, one of the reasons why we are so productive is because we're very specialized is, uh, you know, people zero in on a career and get and hone in on it and can get very good at what they do. But we're a lot, we can, we are able to specialize because price signals allow us to fit our activities in with others. So that, um, you know, without the signals of prices, profit and loss, coordinating the activities of thousands of people, we'd have to be, um, uh, a, each, each one of us would have to be a jack of all trades. And think about, think, think back in history, you know, 200 years ago, you did everything. You were your own cloth maker, uh, carpenter, uh, you, you grew your own, own food, you slaughtered your own meat, uh, you did everything. And as a consequence, you didn't do it that well. <laughs> Whereas now, you know, that's, that's why, you know, for the vast majority of human history, humans have lived on the brink of starvation. These last 200 years in which we've had um, a lot of specialization and coordination of activities through prices, uh, profit and loss, we've managed to break free of that cycle of poverty and you know it's been this extraordinary success story that is just not celebrated nearly enough no that's a really good point because i think that um a quote and i'm gonna i I can't remember who to attribute this to so i'm sorry i don't mean to plagiarize but it was uh this quote says that for the entirety of human history the only way to acquire wealth was to seize it from other people with, uh, with the invention of capitalism, it, cre- it created the opportunity for you to create a fortune by serving your fellow man. And, and it, just to go into like what Adam Smith was saying, it's, the, it's not the benevolence of the butcher or anyone else that we have our breakfast. It's out of their own self-interest. That's absolutely right. There's probably been a lot of people who have said something to that effect, but I, I believe that specific quote is actually my former uh, professor, Walter Williams, who passed away uh, a couple of weeks ago. Well, if I, if I butchered it, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, you didn't at all. <laughs> and I think that's uh, important too. I mean, you see these, uh, I was thinking of the, the assembly line, Ford Motor Company. We all learned about that in elementary school and how you don't make a car in a factory. You make the door or you put the window in and you pass it to the next person. And kind of what you're talking about, even in these areas where we don't have uh, what you would expect to be full spontaneous order in a free market in this more structured corporate area, they still find the benefit of specialization. Yes, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And, you know, Marx had a critique of this that's pretty famous that says, you know, you're going to basically get worn down with drudgery if you do the same thing over and over again. Um, And that's that I think that's a a decent insight. Um, Adam Smith actually came to it himself. Uh, He he pointed that out and said that's why a good uh, employer will recognize that and also change up your responsibilities every so often so that you get really, you know, you can get specialized without also getting worn down. 
That makes a lot of sense. I thought for a second you were talking about standing in bread lines every day, but. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was a, that was a really interesting point that I've never really considered that um, you don't have these great market failures of feeding people, but you do have great state um, failures of not feeding people. And I can think, I mean, the, the big ones that come to my mind is the, the, the famine in the Ukraine, which intentional or not, because depending on which type of, you know, which side of history and which historians you want to talk to, they will either give you the unintentional or the intentional starving of people in Ukraine under Stalin. Um, even then, um, I guess the blockades of Germany in, uh, in 1917, which leads to the riots, right? It, it is really interesting that it turns out that these huge failures that cause these, uh, you know, these catastrophic calamities that we that we lament in the 21st century, it's really because of state intervention and not just because the market couldn't supply it. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, if you, if you look at the, uh, the great Chinese famines, uh, you know, somewhere between 30 million and 55 million people died. And it's essentially because of the hubris of the Chinese planners that they thought they could better um, plan out what is needed in terms of uh, supplies for farming and prices for farming than the people themselves operating in a spontaneous order of the market. So um, it, it, it's really one of the greatest tragedies of the 20th century. And we've seen a lot of examples of that even within our, our own country. Uh, in your book uh, on mainline economics, there's the example of Katrina and, and FEMA going down there. And because of the bureaucracy, bureaucracy excuse me, and the slow nature of it, they have to make sure all the, the ducks are in a row and they're actually not only were they slower to it than the private sector where you have people like walmart that showed up with trucks full of water but they actually turned them away in some cases because they had to say well no this is the state's responsibility we've got this under control meanwhile you have people going out without water uh, at That's the right. same time which is, right. is silly and you know uh, i think competition itself is another example of a spontaneous order um, because, you know, the truth is that there are times when governments can get things right, and there are certainly times when private companies can get things wrong. But being monopolistic, when the government gets things wrong, there typically isn't anybody to come in and, uh, you know, correct it. And, and there's also, there's no incentive, and there's often no ability for somebody to come in and say, hey, I'm going to try to offer a better deal. Um, you know, we've known that the We've known the math about social security for decades now, and yet there isn't any other kind of you know social insurance company allowed to come in and say, "Hey, we're going to try to offer uh, something that's not going to go bankrupt." <laughs> and uh, you know, by the same token, when a company screws up, uh, boy, it gives an extraordinary incentive for every other company to come in and offer a better deal. And you see this over and over again. I mean, a few years ago, you guys remember um, United. Uh, really screwed up and hauled some poor passenger off of a plane um, because they'd overbooked and the guy got bloody. And, you know, that's a that's an extraordinary failure. But you better believe that uh, all the other airlines profited from that uh, extraordinarily. And in fact, United was was disciplined by their, the, their, their stock took a huge hit and they themselves quickly changed their policies. You know, private firms have an extraordinary incentive to to adapt and change very quickly, uh, especially if they're in a competitive market. And I think a decent uh, analogy for that is in everyone's personal life is think about whether you're in your school group meeting, trying to put something together, 
or you're at your workplace, uh, we've all had that boss before that's a little too arrogant, a little too confident in themselves, and they make bad decisions without asking anybody. Uh, so I, th I think we all see the benefit, at least in that micro sense of being able to take in ideas from everybody. We all have different perspectives. Let's see who has the best perspective and the best idea. And, and I think that's a good analogy for the market itself. And that if you only have one structure to make these decisions, you're going to overlook some things. Exactly. And that, again, goes back to the price signal. You know, in an organization, if you want to try to take advantage of the local knowledge that people have, you have to kind of listen to them. You have to talk. And that can be, um, that has some advantages. Of course, you can hear, you can sit down and hear people with their, um, the nuances of their perspective, but it has some disadvantages in that you have to actually take the time to sit down and, and uh, have face-to-face -face or, or have a, um, a phone call. And that is not something that can take place. It, it does just fine in an organization with 20, maybe even hundred people. But anybody who's worked for a large bureaucratic organization knows that it gets clunky when you have much larger than that, when you have more than 100, 100 people or so. But think about a market. You know, in the United States, you and I, we are communicating with millions of other people constantly through our price signals, and we don't even know it. So again, go back to the zinc. You know, you and I probably reacted to that um, uh, strike on the factory without even knowing it. We, you know, oh, we, we very subtly change our consumption habits when prices go up and prices change. Uh, and and we, we, in a way, are communicating with all these thousands of other people, taking into account their local knowledge uh, without even knowing. Absolutely. And I, I think uh, the next thing we wanted to kind of go into here, um, obviously, we've kind of covered the advantages of the flexibility of the market, the ability for us to, to work succinctly with each other and, and uh, encourage each other, help each other out. Um, but it goes deeper than that. I mean, there's... Uh, when the state gets involved, we see things like uh, uh, favoritism within the market, um, privileges that are handed out to certain people based on the policies uh, and, and rent seeking, which is a term that I didn't fully understand until I read your book that I think would be uh, behoove us to, to go into that. Yeah. So um, one, I think most times economists bring the term rent seeking, I have to spend a few seconds apologizing for it because the term is terrible. Uh, it, it doesn't really convey what, the, what it is. Uh, most people, when they think of rent, they think about apartments, right? Um, so it has a slightly technical origin. Uh, basically, rent is what we call the payment for being an exclusive producer. So as it turns out, when you are a, an exclusive producer, uh, you tend to get higher income. So, you know, the salary of a LeBron James, some quite a bit of that is rent. Um, the uh, above market profits uh, that Apple earned when they first came out with the iPhone, quite a bit of that is rent. So rent doesn't necessarily mean to need to be bad. It's, you can just think of it as monopoly profit. What is bad though, is if you use uh, either force or uh, fraud to try to become an exclusive producer. So imagine if Michael Jordan, um, well, actually, let's take, a, take another sports example. Nancy Kerrigan uh, was victim of somebody who tried to use force to allow her to be uh, the exclusive producer, right? So if you hire somebody to bash the kneecap of your competitor, 
that is a way to use force to become exclusive, right? Um, and so through that uh, application of force, you can, you can sort of limit the competition. And this can happen in a private setting. You know, I just named an example where somebody used, used force. It can also happen in an organization. Uh, you have, you know, a coworker who spreads lies or, uh, you know, somehow uses fraud to try to get ahead. Uh, you know, that's an example of, of trying to seek rent. But it's the most, by far, the, the easiest way to seek rent is to use the power of the state. So you don't have to actually handicap your competitor with a, a crowbar, you can go to the state and have them handicap your competitor. And you can do this any number of ways. You can um, ask for a regulation that uh, limits entry into your industry. So, you know, in 50 states in the District of Columbia, you have to have a license in order to be a cosmetologist. And in order to do that, get that license, you have to jump through uh, you have to spend thousands of hours in um, sometimes totally useless training. You have to spend tens of thousands of dollars on that training. You may have to spend tens even more of thousands of dollars in foregone wages as you're going through that training. Mm -hmm. Well, why, why do these laws exist? Is it because consumers want competition from you know, people putting makeup on wrong uh, or they want protection from people putting makeup on wrong? No, it's that Cosmetologists themselves lobby for these rules because it limits their competition. It hobbles their competition. It's a perfect example of rent seeking. And one of the things that's tragic about it is that people spend time, money, effort seeking these privileges, seeking these uh, limits on their competition. And that itself is a waste of resources. You know, when uh, Michael Jordan practices to become a really good uh, athlete, that's productivity enhancing. But when uh, Nancy Kerrigan's goon practices to uh, bang up her competition, that's wasted resources. That's, that's taking away from society. So in some ways, rent-seeking is the mirror opposite of uh, beneficial competition in that it's an extraordinarily wasteful uh, activity. It really, in some ways, can describe why some societies are, are desperately poor and others are spectacularly rich. It has to do with the degree of rent seeking in those societies. Yeah, that was really interesting in your um, in your essay, um, the pathology of favoritism. I really enjoyed that. And down in that graph, where and it took me, I, I probably had to reread it six or seven times to really understand what the graph was showing me. But there is that little area. Um, did you call it dead weight, so to speak? Yeah. Um, it's economic or market dead weight, which happens when rent seeking really runs amok and something and I'm gonna forgive me because I'm gonna quote your own book at you but I thought that it was just really uh it was uh really extraordinary how you summed it up and it's quote whatever it's guys government granted privilege is an extraordinarily destructive force it misdirects resources impedes genuine economic process breeds corruption and undermines the legitimacy of both the government and the private sector and for me that really summed up that essay so well because when you were talking about you know privilege and its effects on the market, I had never really thought of privilege outside of like a bailout, right? That one's that one's easy for all of us to understand. And I thought it was extraordinarily interesting that the very first government bailout comes from a defense contractor. 
Of course, right. like of course, Lockheed Martin is the very first American company built out because we're in the midst of the Cold War. We we need jets, we need engines, we need rockets, we need bombs. If they're going under, we have to subsidize this and pull them out for our own national defense. And then I think that that at that point you set up the. I think you you know we've we've essentially kicked over the first domino to now it becomes almost expected for certain firms and certain companies to get bailed out when things run, you know, when times get hard. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, um, I think this is a point about classical liberalism or libertarianism that's often missed. Um, And I think to some degree, we classical liberals are guilty of this, is that as the declaration puts it, you know, all men are created equal, I should have said men and women, but the base, you know, the starting point of our analysis is that we all have equal weight. This doesn't necessarily mean that we should, we, it obviously doesn't mean that we are e- going to be equally good at every activity. Um, right. Matt, I'm sure you, you're a much better snowboarder than I am. Um, you know, that, that's, that's fine. It, but it, nor does it mean that we should be made equal through redistribution. But we all have equal weighting in terms of our political worth, in terms of our, of our uh, personal worth and our value and our dignity. And uh, if we take that seriously, then it means then what flows from that is the idea of the rule of law, which is that laws should not discriminate between individuals, between companies. Um, They shouldn't pick winners and losers. And I take that very seriously. And I think that a, a lot of our problems in public policy can be traced back to abandoning that idea. Um, you know, they can be traced back to efforts to give special interests some sort of uh, competitive privilege from the government. They get monopolies, they get protections, regulatory protections from competition, they get subsidies, um, they get bailouts, they even get the promise of a bailout. You know, the promise of a bailout is an extraordinary privilege and it's, it's, it's wonderful for, from the perspective of the legislator because they don't even have to spend the money yet. They just have to promise that some future legislator will spend the money. And it ends up privileging um, the firm because they can borrow at a much lower cost. You can go to a bank and say, hey, I've got the, the, got the full faith and credit of the uh, Senate Finance Committee behind me. Um, c- can you loan me some money? then a creditor is going to be happy to loan at a lower interest rate to you than some, you know, Porsche Mucker doesn't have uh, those connections. Right. It's the, uh, what's it, the bronze bank in uh, Game of Thrones? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <They> all, <laughs> we got the backing of the big bank, so there's no worries. Yes. Uh, and I think that's a, an interesting one. And um, we, we get these terms, uh, equality is a big one, where we've kind of misunderstood this term over time where it originally was meant equality in the eyes of the law like you're saying that we have the right not to have favoritism from the law that it should see us all as equal human beings um i think it might behoove us to go as well into competition for that same reason i think often we hear competition and some people think well i don't want to have to compete against my neighbor for resources and they almost see it as this finite amount of resources that we're all clamoring for and at the end of the experiment there's a jeff bezos at the top with all the money (laughs) <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. You know, so competition is one of the important aspects in a market economy, but it's only one. Uh, the other important aspect, of course, is cooperation. And most, we, we, we kind of overlook that, but the cooperation goes between the consumer and the producer. Um, and it's the idea of mutual gain. So uh, probably the best illustrations of this is uh 
when you go and purchase something, you say thank you and they say thank you. It's not just being polite, <laughs> uh, though, that, though it is that, but it's also that you both gain from the experience. Mm-hmm. You, you know, if you give up $2 for a beer and the bartender gives you gives you a gives up a beer for two dollars that means you actually have differences of of opinion over the value of the beer and the value of the two dollars you must value the beer more than two dollars and he must value the two dollars more than the beer Mm -hmm. and those differences allow you to constructively trade and both gain from the interaction so that cooperation you know that's everywhere where competition comes in is that if he doesn't uh, serve you in a way that, ple- that that brings satisfaction, you don't have to be stuck with him. You, you know, somebody else can come along and do it better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of this is, you know, one way to put it is it's the right for the consumer to say no. Um, and that's, this is a human right. Uh, we can see it very clearly when we talk about relationships, right? Everyone should have the right to exit a relationship that they don't want. Everyone should have the right to exit a situation that they don't want. You know, no means no. Um, And when we talk about competition, uh, what we're really saying is that the consumer is sovereign and the consumer can say no to one producer if they feel that they can get a better deal and and, uh, through a cooperative relationship with somebody else. Uh, So those two two, uh, kind of processes, cooperation and competition, they work together um, and they, they work together to serve the consumer. Yeah, that's a really that's a really good point. And I think it's interesting that we understand these ideas when it comes to our own life, but as soon as it gets as soon as it gets put out there, right? As soon as it gets out to the state level, the federal level, even the market level, we stop to we stop internalizing these ideas that you know that we hold to be true, right? Like you were saying, I have the right to reject people in my own life. And then somehow this disconnect comes as soon as you start getting involved with government and markets. And mm-hmm. just to kind of know, frame this in another way, what really draws, I think, all of us to libertarianism, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it, creates, it creates a system for the potential of the greatest economic prosperity through cooperation while maintaining individual rights. And that's kind of, this is, this conversation with you over the last week has really solidified why the the other side right because i can look at libertarianism and say yes i like it because it protects me as an individual but i also like it because it shows it shows us a pathway for the greatest cooperation and through that cooperation we have the greatest access to prosperity yeah i think that's right you know in some ways the word socialism uh should be should be applied to classical liberalism or libertarianism in some ways because it's a very social activity uh cooperating freely cooperating with with millions of your fellow humans um you know the idea that libertarianism is all about rugged individualism oh everybody needs to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and we should all just be you know lone cowboys who do it all on our own that's not at all what is part of the classical liberal tradition if you go back uh, to Adam Smith and, and uh, up through Hayek and the other great classical liberal thinkers, they all emphasize the importance of community and working with one another. And the truth is that it's much easier to work with one another if you do it on a voluntary basis through interactions coordinated through a market or through uh, you know other types of voluntary organizations than it is through coercion. Um, and I think, I, I wonder, I, I 
you, you said something interesting, Matt. You said, you know, why do we lose this this insight when we take it to a larger level? And I I wonder about that question all the time. And one of my thoughts is, I think people romanticize democracy um, too much. You know, they have this idea that oh, democracy is choice. Well, it really isn't. Um, for them, uh, unless you happen to be the decisive voter, your your vote is not going to change the outcome. Um, democracy, if it is majority rules, it's simply just brute force. You know, it's um, as Ben Franklin was to have said, he probably didn't, but he should have. Uh, democracy is two wolves and a lamb deciding what to have for dinner. Right. Um, you know, whereas um, in a in a market, everybody gets everybody has rights. Lambs are protected as well as the, the idea is that lambs should be protected as well as wolves through the rule of law through through a government that does protect property rights and does protect people and holds their persons. Um, and their property as, as uh, sacred, and they get to choose what to have for dinner, right? Uh, that's a very different process. And I, you know, I, I, I think we should romanticize that a little bit more than we do democracy. And it is a little complex when you think about the invisible hand of the market and all these different moving pieces and that, you know, kind of go back to the, the video of the pencil. I mean, there's so many moving parts as far as, I mean, the guy who cuts down the wood you don't think about when you're thinking about the pencil being made, the guy who's in a, a mine somewhere pulling graphite out. Um, so it, it's a more complex idea than socialism where you say, well, yeah, we should all have money handed down to us from this centralized government. Right. So I, I don't think it's that, you know, we, we tend to, uh, to shame socialist thinking sometimes and, and kind of look down on those people, but I, it's not that they have the wrong moral mindset. They're also looking for the best way to organize society I think it's just that they haven't fully understood these ideas. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think also if you, there are, you know, little bubbles or little uh, of socialism in our society, right? You know, a family is essentially a, a tiny little socialist uh, state, right? Uh, where, you know, you, it's centralized production, um, it's redistribution to the children, um, usually you don't take, you, it's not even a de democracy, it's a, a benevolent dictatorship of the parents, uh, you know, and I think maybe because we organize some aspects of our society that way, and that's how we grow up, we think, oh, it's, it's only natural to think that it's, that, that it, that's a proper way to organize the rest of society. Um, but, you know, a good parent knows eventually you do need to give your kids some decision rights and let them make some choices as well. And you should also encourage them to take some responsibility at some point as well. Um, and you know, when part of that's part of adulthood and that's part of um, taking um, humanity seriously and the dignity of humans seriously as you let them have their choices. And that might be a good analogy as well that when you have a, a working family structure that works in kind of this socialist manner and, and uh, dictated down from the parents, um, it's a good system. It, it makes sense in the, those small groups, but there are plenty of families that don't have that good leadership within their own families that have this, you know, you get a bad parent. And I, I think that that's where we're focused a lot as libertarians on, on more the oppressive and the, uh, the issues of the state growing too big, where every four years we're putting a new leader in, in charge. We don't know what kind of policies are going to follow. That's right. And I think there's an enormous amount of, um, expectations for for leaders you know think this this 
not just the president, but also Supreme Court justices. I mean, something's gone terribly wrong if every uh, 4th November, you know, if a Tuesday on November can ruin your life, <laughs> you know, <laughs> something's really gone wrong. Like this, we should be picking a clerk, you know, essentially a competent person who is going to execute the laws that are passed by the, by duly passed by the legislature and nothing more, nothing more, nothing less, just a, a boring clerk who can, who can essentially do the job. But if people are seeing it as the presidency or the Supreme Court or even their, their uh, representatives as, you know, a national father figure or somebody who's going to, um, you know, set the tone for every aspect of our life, we've gone way off the rails. That's not what this is all supposed to be about. Right. It is really interesting to see how um, how much the, the executive branch has really grown over the last several decades, you know, because the founding fathers couldn't imagine the president having the power and the influence into so many different aspects that weren't granted to him by the Constitution. And it is one of those those interesting things. What comes to my mind is always, um, let's call it policing actions, right? Because the Constitution vests the power to declare war in Congress and solely Congress. And then, and for the longest time until you have Korea, that was, that was, a, that was, a, that was a, a I want to say obliged, uh, I guess the president obliged that power. Um, but then when you get to, when you get to uh, the Korean War, well now um, you don't actually have a declaration of war by Congress. You just have Eisenhower with the UN's backing um, sending troops in. And so then in that famous interview, they, they ask him, are we at war? And he says, no, this isn't war. This is a police action. And so at that point, you've shifted, you've shifted the idea that, okay, well, the president's not declaring war and sending us to war. We're just in police actions. And then that leads to Vietnam. Then that leads to Beirut. That leads to the Balkans. That leads to the African wars. That leads to Afghanistan. That leads to Iraq. It leads to all of these quagmires that, that we, that at least I can say that I hate that, you know, national resources are going to fighting these wars and for what purpose, right? There's no clear defined goal. And I, I don't mean to go down that, that, uh, that rabbit hole. No, I think that's a good point though. And, and you look at, you know, uh, Jefferson and Adams famously clashed over many things. They were also good friends at, at various times. But uh, one of the things that they, that they agreed on was, that you, we really shouldn't have a standing army for, which is why they wanted armies should only be funded for two-year terms, not longer than the shortest um, representative, the two-year term of, of a member of Congress. <clears throat> and so um, they agreed on that. And and uh, Alexander Hamilton, who's gotten way more um, street cred in the last few years than he deserves, in my view, <laughs> you know. Uh, he helped them come to that conclusion in part because they were both terrified of him and the thought that that he might, you know, one day become, uh, you know, a dictator. And so they wanted um, one of the reasons Jefferson sort of reconciled with Adams is they he agreed with them that let's have a, a navy because a navy can't invade um, the homeland. You know, a navy can protect us, but it can't. It's much harder to use a navy to uh, oppress. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it, it's it's interesting that um, that skepticism over uh, probably one of the most important instruments of the state, the power to make war. I don't really see either party having that much anymore. You know, that that's totally that's sort of a um, 
uh, tragedy of, of modern American politics, if you ask me. Yeah. That's right. It's sort of passe to, you know, to worry about that. Right. Yeah, I think uh, we've talked about that, uh, Mr. Billingsley and I, several times. I'm trying not to say Matthew every time I refer to one of you guys. <laughs> um, but I mean, recently we saw this with, the, you know, feel how you want to feel about Trump. Uh, and I think a lot of it was probably posturing when he talked about bringing troops back. I don't know if he truly had any uh, any desire to do so, but he went on this uh, Axios interview and kind of got embarrassed about it. And it really went viral online. And then he decides he does want to pull some troops back uh, in these wars. And what you see is where we used to have this system where a president could present to Congress, I think we should go to war. And then Congress would go to a vote. Our elected officials would decide for us whether or not we're going to go to a war. Uh, we've almost seen the opposite now where these presidents enact these police activities. They go over there and then you see when they want to pull troops back, Congress will actually block them from being able to to end these wars or lessen these wars. Yeah. Um, and it, I, think it also, I think it illustrates um, a point. One of the things I study is public choice economics. And it's basically, you could think of it as economists studying political science. It's how is public policy formed? And we're using the same tools of economics to understand it. So how are votes supplied and demanded? How are regulations and public policies supplied and demanded? And uh, you know, it's ironic because Eisenhower did sort of start a lot of this stuff. Um, but uh, I think he certainly hit, un understood it as well in warning the country about the um, military industrial complex. He, he right. understood that once you start, uh, when, once you create an interest group that depends on a large government program, that interest group is going to support it um, long after it's necessary. And so you see this with things like the Abrams tank, you know, which is uh, assembled all across the country, uh, not because that's an efficient way to do it. But because that is, if you assemble it in lots of different congressional districts, you can assemble a majority uh, of legislators to support it. And it's also something that the generals, you know, have said, this isn't, this is basically obsolete. We don't really need this, but we still keep paying for it and buying it. Why? Uh, again, not because it serves a strategic interest, but because it serves a um, special interest that wants it, that wants it. Um, and that you know, that anecdote is multiplied thousands of times throughout the, the federal budget um, in all sorts of programs. Yeah, you see this a lot. I mean, a lot of the war on drugs is a good example of this, where somebody who owned paper mills and an interest in big tobacco back in the day decided to demonize this other plant because it stood to, uh, to get in on their rent seeking. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're still today having where the vast majority of Americans would be pro decriminalizing de uh, criminalizing most drugs, but especially marijuana. And we still have the majority of states are, have not uh, ratified that. That's true. Although one point I would, I, I would say is all humans are subject to certain biases. And one of our biases is the pessimism bias. And libertarians are no uh, more uh, exempt from this than anybody else. Uh, we should take stock of and point out instances where even though the, you know, I think the general public choice incentives, spontaneous order in this case pushes in, the, in a bad direction, right? Uh, where government is gonna to tend to grow. We also have some pretty extraordinary um, victories now and then. Uh, so let me just tick through a few just so that we don't all become too pessimistic. So uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, let's talk about, you know, in this last election on, um, some libertarians have put it, the, the war on drugs has been won 
by drugs. Uh, you know, <laughs> you've essentially <laughs> seen several state and local governments wave their white flags and say, you know, after 70 years or 90 years since the Controlled Substances Act, you know, maybe it's time that we give up. Uh, this isn't really working. And so you continue to see decriminalization of marijuana um, um, either for recreational use or for um, medical use all across the country. Um, and you're seeing some states get, uh, go even further with other types of drugs. Mm -hmm. um, you're also in this last election, um, California rejected an effort, California voters rejected an effort to um, uh, limit the state's um, tax limits. So essentially they've had 40 years of a, of a uh, proposition that that makes it difficult for local governments to raise taxes on property and they, that was rejected by the voters. Uh, California tried to bring back affirmative action and the voters rejected that. Um, over the longer term, um, one of my favorites, 1929, the average tariff on dutiful imports, this is the, 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 the barrier to trade, was 59%, uh, almost 60%. Now it's below 5% extraordinary wow. uh, liberation of free trade around the world. Um, you know, that's part of the reason why uh, we've grown so much richer in the last 100 years. Um, there's been, you know, important deregulations uh, in airlines and trucking and uh, craft beer. Uh, that's why it's, uh, it's estimated that the, you, you can travel for half the real cost per mile than you could um, back in the 70s when airlines were uh, highly regulated. Uh, so, you know, you don't, we can focus on, on the negative and it's easy to do so. And the state certainly does have an incentive to grow, but also in many ways, we're living in a, you know, wonderful, you know, if, if you were to pick the time to live, almost certainly it would be right now, I would think. Um, it's, it's a better, even, even in the midst of this pandemic, it's better to live now than almost any other year in previous history. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, so I definitely think uh, we lose focus of that as human beings in general. I, was, I can remember having that thought when I was 18 years old and playing football and full of testosterone of like, man, I was born in the wrong era. I should have a battle axe in my hand and go and you're not thinking about uh, AC PlayStation and running uh, toilets when you're making those kind of proclamations at 18 years old. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. No, I, I always think that too, because um, professional athletes, you know, good on them for having that, that type of ability to, to demand such salaries from the market. Um, but I always think that how lucky they are because had they, you know, let's take like LeBron James and all these football players. Uh, if you pop them back into 57 AD, well, guess what? You guys are the champions of the battlefield and, and the Coliseums. <laughs> and yeah, you aren't coming back. <laughs> uh, and that's a good illustration too of the a combination of labor and capital. Uh, so you don't even have to push them back to that, that far. Let's put them back to uh, 1920 before uh, you know, there was TV, uh, you can get paid as, basically the value you create is for the few hundred people who can watch you play, right? Whoever's but buying a have, ticket that day. That's right, that's right. Once you have television, you can create value for millions upon millions of viewers, which is why they are paid an extraordinary amount. They don't, it's not, it's not that they create and well, for some people, they may create an, uh, for super fans, they may create an extraordinary amount of value. But the main point is that they create a little bit of value for lots and lots and lots of people. And we're willing to voluntarily pay for it 
and capital makes that possible. Um, you know, apply just a little bit of technology um, that allows people to simultaneously enjoy a, a good sports, uh, uh, a good game, you know, can create an extraordinary amount of value. That's I've really kind of made that argument myself too, where I think people uh, lose focus on that and back to the equality thing where they're like, well, why does, just because a guy can dribble a basketball and jump really high, he deserves to get paid so much. And it's like, well, if you're going to criticize a LeBron James for that, you also have to criticize a Johnny Depp for making that kind of money because they're essentially both in the entertainment industry. That's right. That's right. So the Harvard uh, philosopher, Robert uh, Nozak, had a, had a great uh, analogy for this. I think he was talking at the time about Wilt Chamberlain, but you can substitute whatever, uh, you know, famous athlete now. He said, you know, essentially, if you if you have a trouble with that, then you have trouble with um, uh, voluntary acts of, of capitalism. And that's what it is, is that he, you know, Wilt Chamberlain got fabulously wealthy through millions of uh, voluntary capitalist acts. Um, and it's every time somebody gives up their dollars um, and they, they're not coerced into doing it or they're not forced into doing it, that's, they have the right to do it. And if you're gonna try to uh, say that somebody can't earn that much, then you're really overriding the preferences of consumers. And that's something I feel like gets overlooked a lot when people do criticize the free market and, and capitalism is, well, there's such a discrepancy in the wealth and why is it that they should have so much and I have so little, but what they're overlooking is that uh, volunteerism within it, that you, you can say that, but what you're also doing when you're doing that is you're, taking free choice away from an individual and not allowing them to spend their money as they see fit. That's right. That's right. Yeah. His full, his full phrase is the socialist society would have to forbid capitalist acts between consenting adults. That's um, I, I like that. I, I like that, that, that way of putting it. Um, you know, another, another point there though on equality um, is people, you know, there's been all these, this uh, social science research on how small children and sometimes uh, uh, relatively undeveloped tribes, uh, how they view allocations of resources. And the idea here is what's, what they're trying to get at is like, what, what are we hardwired for? What's in our human uh, brain, irrespective of culture? You know, what do we think is right and wrong? And so, hey, let's go to tribes or let's go to young kids and see see how they react and so um they do these ex experiments that uh no parent would be at all surprised at the result of this experiment but if you if you give um one three-year-old uh four marshmallows and you give another three-year-old two marshmallows guess what the the one who gets the two marshmallows is going to be really upset <laughs> and so some people react to this research and say oh look at this they were hardwired for egalitarianism hardwired for wanting equal treatment. And uh, Paul Bloom is a, a, a social um, psychologist. I think he's at Yale. Um, he points out, uh, no, that you're, you're totally misreading this research. Um, if you take kids and you allocate resources to them and, and mom and dad just give it arbitrarily from more to one and, and less to another, yes, people react very, uh, kids react, have a really, uh, negative reaction. But if instead you say, hey, kids, you get one marshmallow for every toy you pick up. Kids really have uh, are totally bought in on that process, even if, you know, Sally picks up more toys than Bobby and ends up getting more marshmallows. Bobby really doesn't get that upset. <laughs> and the point is, I, we're not necessarily hardwired for egalitarian outcomes. We're hardwired for equal 
we, we want equal treatment. We want equal weighting and value um, and we wanna have a fair process. And uh, you know, that's something that we can agree with, classic, with classical liberals and modern liberals and libertarian and uh, progressives. We should agree on that. Uh, and we should point out to our progressive friends, you know, it, it doesn't mean that we need to redistribute. It just means that we should all have equal weighting in our, in, uh, before government. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I say that a lot, right? I think we have a, a common enemy between us and the, the crowd that's really clamoring for socialism. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's just a misunderstanding of the way we organize it. And I think it's a shame sometimes that, um, like, I was listening to Jimmy Dore the other day, who's one of my favorite kind of left-leaning political analysts. Um, and they talk a lot about corruption and, and why this is why capitalism is bad is because of the corruption of the system. Uh, but I think what gets overlooked there is that corruption is the human element within the system. That's going to exist in, in any organization. And I think that's why we kind of lean towards libertarianism is it removes the power of coercion from the government so that those corruptive forces can't as directly influence this. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, when somebody says, you know, I don't, I don't like the capitalist system because it allows people to get ahead through by manipulating the laws. Um, I, I, I agree with them, but that's not capitalism. Right. That's not a genuine capitalism. Right. That is, uh, <laughs> it's, you can call it crony capitalism, you can call it favoritism. I don't know what you want to call it, but it's not, it's not the vision of a free and open uh, market economy. Um, and I often a- say cronyism because I think it gives a misconception when you say crony capitalism. Because you're going to have crony socialism, crony communism. I mean, you can add that word to any form of government. That's right. Yeah. Right. And to me, I, th- I actually like, I think the best, most descriptive term is favoritism. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, cronyism isn't entirely accurate. Uh, cronyism comes from the uh, chronos uh, for time. And it essentially means, you know, somebody you've known for a long time. Well, you know, those kind of relationships, that's not necessarily bad. We, we, uh, buy and uh, date and um, interact with people on the basis of recommendations from friends all the time. That's not bad. Um, really, what we, what we don't want is um, somebody getting special treatment from government. And that special treatment sometimes is doled out on the basis of relationships. Um, you know, I think there, there are, there's more than one person with the last name Trump who is serving in the administration right now, right? right. That's, that's a bit of cronyism, right? Um, but at the same time, that's not the only bad type of um, favoritism that goes on. Uh, you know, there's agricultural subsidies that benefit farmers who have absolutely no personal relationship with the Secretary of Agriculture, right? Um, uh, I am, a, as a homeowner and as a, as a father of three, I benefit from the tax code that favors me, even though I don't know the Secretary of Treasury or any of the tax writers on the Senate Finance uh, Committee, right? Um, but that, that, that form of favoritism is not good, in my view, uh, and it has nothing to do with relationships. So I think favoritism, privilege, those are the kinds of terms that I think are a little bit more descriptive of what the problem is. Absolutely. I did want to cover too, uh, while we're kind of coming up against our time limit here, um, I wanted to, just in the interest of, of arguing the other side a little bit, address what the critiques of capitalism are um, and maybe some of the, the falsehoods within that. Two of the ones that pop into my mind are uh, the idea of exper- externalities that you cover in your book mm-hmm. uh, and the fear of, of somebody monopolizing the market in a, a free market system. Yeah. So I think externalities, so the basic idea of an externality is, um, you know, most 
market interactions are without externality. Most market interactions, if Logan wants to sell the mat, um, they both benef benefit from the exchange. It's uh, what we were talking about earlier where, uh, you know, both of them are gonna walk away from that exchange saying, thanks. Uh, but there are instances where you can have a uh, interaction where some benefit or cost of that interaction is externalized onto somebody else. And, uh, you know, if Logan sells Matt a beer and then Matt um, drives drunk and it affects the other Matt, <laughs> or if he, um, or if Logan sells Matt uh, some manufactured product that also, uh, the, through the process of manufacturing, it creates some noxious um, gas or, or pollution, then it can affect other people. Um, so those are called externalities and they are a tricky problem. Um, I, I think they're intuitive that people understand that that can happen in a market economy and people have a number of different solutions. Um, there are possible uh, market solutions for these. Um, they do involve the state protecting property essentially. Um, so one market solution for this is to say, hey, we're gonna hold you liable. We're gonna allow anybody who's harmed by the activities of another to sue. And we're gonna use um, torts, uh, which are, uh, if tort law is um, essentially, uh, if, it's, if there's no abuses to tort law, this, it can be a private type of, type of system and it can have the characteristics of a private market in the sense that it's just protection of persons and property. So uh, I could sue you for any damages that you've done. Um, so, but it is a tricky problem. One thing I'd point out is as intuitive as externalities are, um, they abound in um, public markets. They, they, ab they abound in democracy, right? You know, anytime you, can, you have a rule by majority, the majority can easily impose costs, externalize costs onto a minority. Um, that's essentially what democracy is. It's what democracy allows. So for as damning as externalities are for uh, markets, they are equally perhaps more so uh, damning for politics um, because it, it, it's not just organized majorities, but it's special interests that can externalize costs on uh, unorganized interests. It's current voters who can organize and, and, and externalize costs onto future voters for example, through deficit spending. Um, it's uh, companies that can lobby for regulations that externalize costs onto consumers. Um, you know, these examples abound. Uh, it's, it, externalities are a problem of life. Um, they happen in both markets and in politics. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really interesting, um, especially your solution, right, where you say that you almost, um, that you can solve these, but you need a state. Um, and that's kind of where, and maybe that's not the correct um, categorization of it, but that's kind of what leads me and Logan to be minarchist versus like full-blown anarcho-capitalist because, and I was reading um, Anarchy, State, and Utopia, and I'm still trying to slog through it because it is not an easy book to read. But it yeah. is basically, as far as I understand it, the case for a minarchist society where government really only has three legitimate functions in, in, in our society. That is protection against external force. And you could classify that as like, um, like a Navy for defense, you know, um, maybe not like a standing army for oppressive and offensive actions, but at least a defensive force. The second would be enforcement of contracts. Like you and I, we sign, a, we sign an agreement 
and you don't want to act on it, then there is an outside force that can come in and say, no, you must actually perform on the contract as written. And then the third one, and this one is, as I've studied it, it's the definition has got a little bit broader, but essentially it is protection against fraud. And I would think that this externality of, let's say, like the noxious gas coming out, that would, in my mind, that does get us into that realm of protection against fraud in some way, um, where where government is there to help ensure quality of product, right? So I would say that, because I know a lot of libertarians, we take things to the extreme, where it's like, well, we don't want any government regulation. It's like, I'm not opposed to the USDA ensuring that my beef is safe, right? Like those type of things I'm not opposed to. And, um, and this was even your point that libertarians, we tend to just go all the way to the end without actually realizing that there are small steps um, towards it. But that's just my little minarchist rant. I think, yeah. Rick, oh, if ahead, you don't mind if I just say something real quick, I, I think that that's kind of the, uh, you know, the old adage that what's the difference in a minarchist and an anarchist is about six months of studying. Uh, they kind of say there's this domino effect. Um, and just kind of what you said, where you said, why, why do we have these offensive armies? Um, and I think it's a good example of the state kind of moving that and why we need to always be vigilant of the state's growth, where the argument's not that we're out there doing offensive things. The argument is we're doing these preemptively in the name of defense. Right. And then when you kind of look at where that leads, it's like, okay, so us putting a, a port embargo on Yemen and causing the only modern cholera outbreak in, in our history, uh, how much is that really doing to defend America? Yeah, I think that's right. And, and um, yeah, it's, it's fun to have 3 a.m. dorm room conversations about, you know, do we actually need to, uh, you know, have a license for brain surgeons? Um, you know, I, and I'm willing to have that, entertain those. I actually do not believe empirically that um, uh, licenses for physicians really protect us. That's that's probably not what's protecting you. You know, it, in most states, a uh, psychiatrist is licensed to perform brain surgery on you. They don't because uh, lots of market mechanisms keep them from doing that. You know, they're going to lose their pro their hospital privileges. They're going to uh, have insurance. Their, their medical malpractice insurance is going to go through the roof if they start doing that. Um, you know, there's lots of other things that actually, and they're probably going to be sued. Uh, you view that as a market mechanism. Um, so I'm happy to have those conversations, but I think we don't need, we don't have to get to 3 a.m. in the morning in the dorm room. Right now, today, we can, we could talk about very reasonable ways to limit the state, you know, uh, eliminating licenses for cosmetologists and hair braiders uh, and interior decorators and barbers, uh, all of those, we, we could do that. And, and I think with, with minimal uh, argument about whether it's a legitimate role for the state. Um, so I, I think we can take those easy, those, those kind of you know, small steps uh, towards a freer society and we should, we should be doing so. And then after you take that small step, you should think about what's the next step. Can we do the next one? Um, and then eventually we'll get to 3 a.m. in the morning and, and talk about, uh, about uh, uh, physicians licensure. Yeah, that's right, a really right. good point, too, because I think a lot of people, we do tend to take things to the extremes and libertarians are certainly guilty of it. And we are not good at walking back from that line to find that what you're just saying, that very first step, because 
when we talk about, um, I know I encountered this an awful lot when I talk to people that maybe aren't familiar with the ideas and it's just like, oh, so you just wanna destroy the state and deregulate everything overnight. And no, of course not, right? Cause there's consequences to that and creating carnage and chaos for the sake of just getting rid of the state to me, that doesn't that doesn't seem like a sound strategy to move forward. But you're right; like there are there are small steps that we can take to start to get the state out of areas and aspects of our life that it has no business being in. And then once we take that step, we take the next and the next. Because as we were talking yesterday, right? We don't we don't run a mile in three great leaps. You know, you take step after step after step after step, and slowly over time, you get to five thousand two hundred eighty feet. You don't make that in three great strides. That's right. And, you know, another way to think about it is uh, it, everything is on a continuum. Um, that, and you can see this empirically. There's measures of the degree of economic freedom different countries have. Um, Fraser Institute has the uh, Economic Freedom of the World Index, where they, they look at uh, the size of government, the extent of regulation, the soundness of money, uh, the protection of persons and property, and the ability to trade with um, others internationally. And they look at what are the the they look at objective measures of these things and and assign scores to countries based on the degree of economic freedom that their citizens enjoy, and you when you do that you see there's a there's a spectrum. The United States is a mostly free country. Um, there are certain aspects and certain markets in the United States where that are um, significantly less free than others. Um, you can think of healthcare as an extraordinarily unfree market in the United States. Um, mm -hmm. You can think of retail trade and technology as a pretty free aspect of our economy. Um, and when you look across countries, when you look across markets, a pattern that's pretty darn consistent emerges. Um, people who, in, who are fortunate enough to live in, in freer places, they seem to do better. They have higher incomes, they have um, even other measures, longer lifespans, uh, lower infant mortality, um, better protection of, of the environment, um, better happen, higher levels of subjective happiness. Um, and uh, when you see people who live in less, uh, and you can see this across markets too, you know, what are we, what are people generally happy about? Well, people are pretty happy about their supermarket, about technology, um, uh, in industries, what are they unhappy about? Uh, let's see, healthcare, um, you know, public services, utilities. Um, those are the more regulated aspects of our economy. And I think it's, uh, you know, as a general rule, uh, you move towards freedom, uh, people tend to be uh, pleased with the results. And I think that's something we wanted to bring up and make a point of too, is to, to bring this into a more digestible concept for anybody that might be listening. Our generation has two huge complaints with one, the healthcare industry, where you can get in a car accident and go absolutely bankrupt uh, and these have to pay these ridiculously high premiums along the way. And uh, the student debt issue is another big one. We're hearing a lot of people go, we need to, to alleviate this student debt. And this is ridiculous that we've allowed this system to get out of control like this, where it spirals you into, so basically puts you into a, a state of uh, uh, quasi serfdom where you're having to pay back this debt for the rest of your life. Uh, and I think the part that gets overlooked on that a lot is that these, at one point in time in this country, were not extremely expensive uh, programs. This is something that has come on by the, the state's interference and all of the hurdles that they put inside of it. Yeah, and you know, it gets back to the idea of spontaneous order. There are positive uh, beneficial spontaneous orders and there are negative spontaneous orders. Um, and so 
you know, in the case of uh, government, uh, one of the more pernicious or negative spontaneous orders is the process, uh, sometimes it's called the dynamics of intervention. And it's the basic idea that uh, once you ask, once, once you, you ask for one intervention and, and you get it, then that invites a host of others. So, you know, in, in terms of healthcare, uh, during World War II, the government had imposed widespread price and wage controls. Um, employers could not increase the wages of their employees. And so they were having trouble attracting talent. And so as a way to get around that, they started offering non-wage benefits, things like, hey, we'll, we'll pay for your health insurance. Well, um, that was a way around the price control. Eventually the government came to not tax um, these benefits. Um, and that was another way around, around it because it, it, if you're an employer you're trying to attract talent, you can offer a little bit more generous uh, fringe benefits um, and it's not gonna be taxed. So it's a good, so employees started, you know, um, asking their employers for those kinds of benefits. Well, that, that starts to marry health insurance to um, employment. Uh, then you start to get uh, things like uh, uh, problems where uh, insurance companies would lobby the state so that you can't buy insurance across state lines. Mm -hmm. um, so then you have less competition there. So then if you lose your job or you move across state lines, you lose your insurance. Um, then people start asking for insurance to be not insurance. Um, you know, insurance is supposed to be something that is gonna pay for a uh, conceivable uh, but probabilistic event. You know, something that could happen, but you're not sure it's gonna happen. Well. In a lot of ways, now that we've mandated that insurance be for completely foreseeable routine events, you know, imagine if you, your employer could offer you um, tax-free auto insurance. Well, pretty soon you'd start asking that auto insurance covered, uh, you know, oil changes, and that's essentially what we've done with health insurance: um, is we've made it into prepaid healthcare, but it's also prepaid healthcare over which the consumer has almost no, you know oversight. So the price mechanism is absolutely, totally absent. You know, when I go and, and take my kids to a, um, the doctor, I have no idea what it's going to cost. And what it ultimately does cost, it may not necessarily be passed down to me. And so I have no incentive to think about, well, do I want that, that uh, x-ray or not? You know, it, it may cost several hundred dollars. And it really does cost that. It costs somebody that. Mm -hmm. uh, but it doesn't cost me at the, at the time because it, it's, it's later uh, shared with me and thousands of other consumers in our, in our insurance premiums. So it's a good example of just how you can get a spontaneous order that evolves. Let me give you one other example. Um, earlier, we talked about deregulation of airlines. This, by the way, was something that um, Jimmy Carter and Ted Kennedy were, were responsible for. Um, they, they were, uh, you know, don't get enough credit for this. Um, but what had happened with the airline regulation is... Uh, like so many regulations, it, it had become something that was demanded by the companies, not by consumers. And what they did was they would put um, limits on prices that, that airlines could charge. So then in order to compete, outcompete their competitors, they would offer fringe benefits like um, movies um, in the cabin or steak dinners. Well, then airlines would, would complain and they'd say, hey, our competitor is offering a steak dinner. Can you, civil aeronautics board, can you limit the size of their steak or the size of their, their sandwich? And uh, Alfred Kahn was the, the head of the uh, civil aeronautics board that was appointed by Carter and he ultimately deregulated. He said, 
you know, this is ridiculous. You control, you control rates and that invites entry. You control entry and that invites fringe benefits. Then people are, are coming to us and asking for a regulation of the size of the sandwich. This is stupid. <laughs> Let's just deregulate <laughs> the whole thing. And so it actually was, again, another un, um, unappreciated, I think, the success story in the last uh, 40 years is the uh, liberation of airlines and it's been great for consumers. Yeah, now you can actually go online and get a flight and look at an entire range of prices that you might can pay That's that right. allows a, a entry of people who don't have quite as much money in the bank to go fly somewhere. That's right. That's, you know, we complain about uh, flying to some degree because it's not as luxurious as it used to be, or at least actually I don't complain, but I, I notice older people complain about that sometimes. <laughs> well, that's because it used to be a luxurious item that only the very, very wealthy, you know, back in the seventies, uh, a small minority of Americans had ever flown anywhere. Uh, mm -hmm. And now, you know, most of us have, uh, 2020 is a different year, but in most years recently, <laughs> uh, majority of Americans have flown just in the last year. Yeah, and I think that's a really good example of, I mean, you even outlined it. Um, in a free and open market, you know, a firm will innovate to get some sort of um, competitive edge in the market so that they can take their unfair share. That then, um, you know, invites uh, imitators to come in and yeah. mimic their strategy. And so it's this really cool effect where you have, you have an ever-climbing um, rate of policy while um, in the long run, or I guess let's say performance and service, while in the long run that gets cheaper for a lot of people and airlines is a good one, right? So it's like, okay, I do this. I now have the competitive edge in the market. Someone, now everyone else does that too. It brings the price down because my competitive edge is now shared by a bunch of people. So now everyone, all the consumers get to experience my competitive edge now a regulated market price, you know, regulated by the market. That's and it right. just keeps going up. That's right. And, and in general, whenever you find what's a so-called market failure or market imperfection, there, that presents a profit opportunity. So if a company screws up, um, that creates a major profit opportunity for somebody to come in and do it better and correct that market, that market failure. That's something that you see missing in some of these more top-down decision-making uh, organizations, if I'm not mistaken, where part of the benefit of the market is that you have this entrepreneurial uh, innovations where there's, you get a lot of people rather than having one person at the top who can say, Hey, why aren't we doing this better? You have every single person in that industry has an opportunity to see that and, and be able to exploit it for themselves and therefore provide a better product for the market. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And then, you know, I think we should be celebrating a lot of those, those examples. Uh, you know, kids grow up, here, knowing the dates 1776 and 1865 and 1914, you know, when states did, you know, major, um, usually these are revolutions or deaths or uh, assassinations, you know, major things go, go on. And it's fine to learn those, but we don't know dates like 1955 when the, um, you know, the first cargo carrier was invented. Um, you know, huge huge change for all of us, right? Uh, the idea that you have to unload an individual box one by one uh, in order to uh, in order to feed the city versus you can in a minute, a few minutes have a crane unload an entire uh, cargo box. Uh, you know, that totally revolutionized shipping. 
um, or take, uh, you know, Alexander Fleming's uh, development of penicillin, uh, you know, his discovery, famous discovery where he had, uh, he, he realized that mold seemed to stop the, the grow of, the, he, he had a famously un, unclean uh, laboratory and there was mold growing in his uh, windowsill. And it, man, it, he was studying the growth of the bacteria and he noticed that the bacteria stopped growing when it hit the mold. Uh, well, this now leads to the invention of penicillin, uh, which is an, it has, is an extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, so go back to 1920, the um, uh, Calvin Coolidge's son was playing um, tennis on the White House lawn. So president of the United States' son, you know, the most pretty much, uh, as privileged as you can get, right? Um, he got a blister, the blister turned into a blood blister, that turned into sepsis, and within two weeks he was dead. Mm. Uh, well, I, today a $2 pill would solve that problem. Yeah, yeah that's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, and <laughs> no, you're right. I think that we should, um, we need to reframe the benefits and the good that capitalism has done for us because it's not perfect, right? Because people are not perfect and it's not the institution that is fallible. It is the individuals that create it that, that are susceptible to these, um, these, these problems that we experience and then want to blame it on the greater institution. But yeah, you're right. It's it's all of these little things, and there's millions of examples. And I think a good place to wrap up because we did go a little bit long. But no, I I really appreciate the conversation, and I want to be cognizant of your time because I know that you have things to do. Otherwise, I think I we just keep talking for the next several hours. But it is one of those things that you know we as we as people in the 21st century have benefited from the products that arise from voluntary and spontaneous human cooperation, and it has done more for more people than any other, you know, system that I can think of. Absolutely. And, you know, again, just go back to that idea that the vast majority of humans live that have ever lived, lived on the brink of starvation. Uh, you know, really, truly nasty, life was really, truly nasty, brutish and short, right, as, as Hobbes put it. Um, and that was because that's, that's the human condition. But the last 200 years of the development of, of capitalism uh, you know, it's just led to this extraordinary, extraordinary growth in um, the, the human condition. And you see, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are lifted out of poverty every day. Uh, and it's a totally unsung and uncelebrated achievement. But, you know, back when I was, when I was born in 1980, um, I think it was 38% of the globe lived in extreme poverty. And now it's below 10%. Um, you know, what an extraordinary achievement, right? That's absolutely huge. Yeah, that's something else, man. Okay. Well, we do appreciate you coming on, Matt, man. It was, it was great to have you. Uh, Matt and I get in our own uh, libertarian bubble and talk circles around each other with this stuff. But I think we really appreciated having somebody come in here who actually is educated and has a PhD in this sort of thing. Um, and again, Applied Mainline Economics, guys, was the book that uh, we read to, to go into this that Matthew and a colleague of his wrote. Um, highly advise anybody to give that a read. It was very interesting. I don't know that I understood exactly how interesting economics were until I got into this book and I knocked it out in like 48 hours. So it was it was a very interesting read. And do you have anything on your end, uh, Mr. Mitchell, that you would like to plug? Anything else you'd like to direct our uh, modest amount of listeners towards? Well, you know, you guys are doing a great job, and you know, I'm so glad to see you guys doing this. I, I'm I'm excited. Uh, 
to see this experiment uh, con continue. There are a lot of great resources out there. There's organizations like the Institute for Humane Studies, uh, the Foundation for Economic Education, FEE, um, that if you wanna go and find more resources, find books, find videos, um, you, can, you can find them there and they're, they're great organizations. And of course, uh, my own organization, the Mercatus Center, we've, we've got uh, a lot of policy res uh, resources as well. So uh, there's a whole world out there. Uh, and thankfully, uh, almost all of this stuff is uh, priced at zero now because of the internet. Uh, so you can um, access a, a, a extraordinary education for essentially pennies. That's right. And I am uh, probably going to buy a hard copy of this book to have on my shelf and to, to support you a little bit. But I read this all online that I got a link through an email. So it's available to you guys online. <laughs> it's, these are things that you can seek out uh, and take some time, guys. Listen to economists. Stop reading books about uh, what politicians have written down. They've done plenty to mess this place up. Let's start listening to economists along the way. <laughs> well, thanks, guys. All right. Well, thanks Absolutely. for joining us. Thank you. Mitchell. Uh, it's uh, been a pleasure and we will see you guys next time. Thank you guys very much for listening to Against the Mob podcast. Please check back in for another episode next Tuesday and every Tuesday after that. Please like, subscribe, and share with a friend. Follow us on Twitter at Against the Mob and on Instagram and Facebook at Against the Mob podcast. Again, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.